Some of you know my nephew Jack. He just graduated from college this past spring. Now he is taking a year off to embark on a mission trip, and quite a mission it is. It's called the World Race, and it will eventually take him around the world. Currently, he's serving in an orphanage in Guatemala. Communication is limited, as you can imagine, but I actually got a telephone call from him this past week. I was very interested in the work that he's doing, where he's staying, and what is he eating. But what he really wanted to tell me was the impact his mission experience is having on his thinking and his feeling, especially when it comes to his faith. He said to me, from church and school growing up, I guess I always knew the Lord as an idea in my head, but now I feel like I'm growing to know him as a person in my heart. Increasingly, scientific study finds that we not only think with our minds, we think with our hearts as well. Besides the neurons in our brain, we have over 40,000 neurons in our hearts. Our head and heart are meant to work together when forming choices and making decisions. Choices about where we'll live, what we'll do, who to marry. Decisions about what school to choose, what to study, or who will be our friends. These are all the obvious choices we obviously consciously make every day, all the time. And then there are others we make, deliberately or randomly, consciously or otherwise. Choices about whether to live a life of service for others or a life all about ourselves. About thinking big or thinking small. About being generous or mean-spirited. Those are choices that determine the quality of life we will have and the kind of people we will be. Of course, those choices seem pretty obvious on the surface, at least here in a church setting. Of course, living in community is better than, than a life lived in isolation. Of, of course, choosing to be generous is nobler than choosing to be small-minded. Of course, committing to service over selfishness is just the right thing to do. We know that in our heads, but it's a whole other thing entirely to believe it in our hearts. And then actually doing something about it is still another step. In their book, Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard, Authors Chip and Dan Heath, their brothers, explore this in terms of what they refer to as directing the rider, motivating the elephant, and shaping the path. The rider is our mind. Change begins when the mind gets involved and gets pointed in a new direction, focused on a new subject. But that in itself probably will not constitute change. Our minds, in fact, have very little power to move us to act. How often do you know the right thing to do, eat 
healthier, exercise more, keep to your budget. How often do you know the right thing to do? You just don't do it. That's where the elephant comes in. The elephant represents our hearts. Only when our minds and hearts are aligned are we positioned for change. Then the path represents the steps we need to take, what we need to do to reach our goals, to live out our commitments, to make that change. Anyway, it turns out that Jesus actually had quite a lot to say about the head-heart connection. In fact, the whole of the Christian life, to some extent, the choice to follow the Lord and grow his disciples is all about the head-heart connection. It's called conversion. Conversion is about a change in thinking that leads to a change in feeling that involves a change in behavior. And that is what this new message series is all about. To begin, we're going to look at the biggest choice of all. We're going to look at the most important question ever, the most important question ever. And that could sound like an exaggeration coming from anybody else, but since it is widely known that I never exaggerate, you need have no fear there. This is honestly, simply, the most important question ever. And how we answer it is the most important choice ever. The most important choice we'll ever make. We find this question in the Gospel of Mark. At one point, Jesus takes his 12 disciples on a road trip. It's the biggest journey of Jesus' adult life and further afield than any of the disciples have ever been before. They go to an unlikely destination, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was, well, it was a kind of ancient Las Vegas on steroids. The main attraction in this place was a temple located in a grotto beneath the city. The grotto temple was dedicated to a Greek god by the name of Pan. The cult of worship for this particular god, Pan, was wild, as in wildly hedonistic, actually savage. It wouldn't even be appropriate for me to suggest just how savage in this setting. You can look it up for yourself. Locals called the place the Gates of Hell, and with good reason, because it was believed to be the entrance to the underworld. Ironically enough, it was also the source and headwater of the River Jordan, the very river in which Jesus was baptized by John. So Jesus takes the disciples there not to preach or teach, not to heal anyone or convert a single soul. He takes them there to ask them two questions. And the first question goes like this. Who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the word out on the street about me? Now, that is not a question I would suggest you go and ask at work or school tomorrow because it could be the case 
Nobody is talking about you. Oscar Wilde once quipped, there's only one thing worse than being talked about. It's not being talked about. However, Jesus didn't have to worry about not being talked about. Everybody was talking about him. And so when he asked the question, the apostles are not at a loss for answers. They have lots of answers. They said in reply, John the Baptist, some say, you're Elijah. Still others say you're one of the prophets. In other words, there's a lot of confusion out there about who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. This in turn tees up that other question, that second question, which is the most important question. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It was a British writer and theologian, C.S. Lewis, who famously noted that in answering the question, who do you say that I am? We really only have three choices. There's only three possible answers to that question. Jesus of Nazareth is either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord God. A lunatic, a liar, or the Lord God. Think about it. Jesus claimed to exist from all eternity, to be the Son of God, to be the way, the truth, and the life. He made all kinds of other wild, outrageous claims besides. He said, eat my body, drink my blood. If anyone else spoke in this way, it would be dismissed as crazy talk. So was he a lunatic? Well, the Gospels tell us that some people thought so, including members of his own family. Although it's actually easy to think of members of your own family as crazy. But the difficulty with believing Jesus was crazy is that the Gospels and all of subsequent history present a person of unparalleled brilliance, balance, emotional intelligence, skill, insight, humor, gentleness, empathy, kindness, and the list could go on and on. It's difficult to ascribe so many amazing attributes to someone who was profoundly delusional to someone who is completely detached from reality. So, maybe he was just a liar. He knew he wasn't God, and he pretended to be God, pulling off the greatest hoax in history and fooling a lot of people. In fact, the cross proves that he was a liar. His massive deception ended in utter defeat and despair. On the cross, he was revealed for exactly what he was, a fraud. But what strongly argues against that theory is that the Jesus movement didn't die on the cross. Quite the contrary, it almost immediately gained momentum and grew exponentially, becoming the major force in human history. It's difficult to believe so many people could be so completely deceived for so very long, and they didn't even have cable news. The remaining answer is really the easiest one to hold. It just makes sense. He was who he said he was. Admittedly, 
it makes sense in a way that we can't understand, that is a total mystery, but still, it just makes sense. He really is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. He really did rise from the dead, and he really will come again in glory at the end of time. It just makes sense. In any event, though, Jesus demands that we think through his claims and decide for ourselves whether he is the Christ, the Son of God, or not. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Peter, for one, had made up his mind. Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus affirms his statement, but warns him not to tell anyone. Why? We learn in the next verse. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and rise on the third day. He spoke this openly. So Jesus affirms Peter's response that he is the Messiah, the Christ. But then he takes a surprising turn and talks about his suffering and death. That is not Peter's idea of the Messiah, not at all. His idea of the Messiah is a conquering hero, a powerful prince who would overthrow the Roman occupiers, empower the oppressed Jewish people, and restore the nation of Israel. And so Peter, who is never shy, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. At this, Jesus, in turn, turned around and looking at his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as human beings do, but not as, not as God does, but as human beings do. So Peter rebukes Jesus, telling him he's wrong. He does it in a discreet kind of way. But then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter in full view of everyone. Why? Because he wants everyone to understand that Peter's wrong. Peter's thinking is wrong. What's wrong with Peter's thinking? Well, he tells Peter, you're thinking like a human being. Now, you might be tempted to ask, well, how else is he supposed to think? He is a human being. He has to think like a human being. The point is that Peter was valuing what's important based on the world's values. Conversion happens. We begin to grow as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, first of all, through the transformation of our minds. We have to learn to think, not as human beings do, but as God does. How do we do that? Well, how do we learn anything? Study, application. Ever been in a relationship, a friendship, a partnership, where you know how the other person thinks? You know how the other person thinks. You're in some situation, and you know what is going through their minds because you've spent so much time with them. Spend time with God. Spend time listening to him. Spend time in Scripture listening to him, and you will begin to think as God thinks. The story goes on from there because that's just the first step for Peter and the others. After rebuking Peter, Jesus brings the crowd together and he says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and 
follow me. For the first time in Mark's gospel, we're introduced to the cross. This is the very first reference to the cross. The cross represents the lostness of humanity. We were so lost that when perfect love came to visit us here on earth, we nailed that love to a tree. Our sanctuary here at church is dominated by the cross because it serves as a powerful image, the most powerful image ever that speaks to our hearts about God's heart. It's the ultimate assurance, the definitive sign that our faults and failures, our sin and selfishness no longer separate us from the love of God. They don't, they can't, ever. When we have changed our minds, when we have changed our hearts, then the project becomes following. We are about following him. In my head, Jesus is Lord on my heart. He died for me on the cross, and my path forward is to follow. So as we wrap up this first week of our series, permit me to to offer you two challenges. First challenge, spend some time this week with God. Spend some time in quiet time, listening and learning. Even four or five minutes a day, can be a place to start. If you need a plan, we can help you out. Sign up for our brand new daily devotional that we launched this morning. It's called Daily Practice. You can sign up for it on our website, and we'll send it to you every morning as our gift to you. Second challenge, can I encourage you to make a commitment to this series, to the whole of it? Commit to joining us each week in this series in person here on Ridgely Road or online. If you do, if you do, by the end of this series, you could very well be thinking and feeling differently.